past is behind us, but it is also always within us. Do you agree with that? What happens when you stop hiding secrets? Could unhiding bring life, awakening? Or does the exposure of our secrets bring too much pain to bring them into the light? We'll talk about that today as we begin the, a new month of conversations here at the Radio Backyard Fence. I'm excited. Do you know that March is National Reading Month? Oh, the joys of reading, the discoveries about places, people, things, the revelations that we can have about ourselves as we read. I wrote about today's featured resource that it is like looking in a mirror. Because we all have secrets, we are all weighed down by guilt and shame of some sort until we deal with those things that are in the past. Kelly Flanagan is going to discuss his first foray into fiction. Usually we do Fiction Fridays. There's something different about this novel, and you're going to hear more about Elijah Campbell today. Let's get going. Thanks to Ryan McConaughey doing all things technical. Trish is our producer. Gabby T's in the chair today. Charles will be answering your, your phone calls. Well, listen to this. If you have listened to this program for any amount of time, you know how much I love hymns. Part of that is nostalgic. Way back in the past, I used to sing these as a kid, hear them as a child. It's how I grew up. But there's more to it than nostalgia. Something happens when I hear these melodies. The words surface and echo in the heart. A few weeks ago, Larry Shackley was with us, and he mentioned a new CD that he was working on, Hymns in the Stillness. He arranged 12 hymns, and I'd love to send these to you. I think this may be one of our most popular thank yous that we've ever given. If you support us with a gift of any size, we're going to put a physical CD in your hands. You don't have to download it. It's a physical CD. I wanted to send an 8-track. <laughs> they wouldn't let me. Listen to the simplicity just of this first song from the album. It's just Larry and the piano and his arrangement of leaning on the everlasting arms. I love the, the third verse. What have I to dread? What have I to fear leaning on the everlasting arms? I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms, safe and secure. You need to hear that today. I want to send this CD to you. Hymns in the Stillness. Give a gift of any size. Call us at 866-95-FABRY. 866-953-2279 or go to chrisfabrylive.org scroll down you'll see how you can give right there and become a back fence friend at chrisfabrylive.org all right one of the reasons i wanted uh, kelly flanagan to join me today is i feel like there's a connection between awakening between god doing something to draw us closer to himself and the idea of unhiding. And I'm not sure if I'm right, but I feel that there's something stirring, especially in men today, and not to push women aside of this, but I think there is a stirring in men that something's off. I don't have what it is that I've been hoping for, what I really want in my life, and I don't know what it is. And as I read Kelly's novel, I felt like he was putting a fictional finger on a real spiritual nerve. Dr. Kelly Flanagan is a clinical psychologist, speaker, author of The Marriage Manifesto, Lovable, True Companions. He's also written for Christianity Today, Reader's Digest, and others. 
lives in Dixon, Illinois, the metropolis of Dixon with his wife, who's also named Kelly, and uh, there are three children. The book that we're going to talk about, The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell, is a novel. It has won a gold medal for fiction in the Illumination Book Awards. Dr. Kelly, welcome to the program. How are you doing today? Chris, thank you for having me here. I'm great, thank you. For those who don't know who Dr. Flanagan is, give me a quick flyover of your life. Who is Kelly Flanagan? Who is Kelly Flanagan? I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, so I, uh, I, was, I was born and raised in this little town of Dixon, Illinois. Um, I grew up, um, I always say that I, I left this town with uh, sort of a sense of shame that I wasn't, I wasn't interesting enough right? That I was sort of forgettable and people were going to sort of leave me because I just wasn't interesting. And you, and you don't become more interesting by staying in Dixon, Illinois uh, when you're 18. So I, I took off from Dixon. I went to the University of Illinois uh, for undergrad, got a degree in clinical psychology, uh, then a graduate degree at Penn State in clinical psychology, where I met my wife, who is also a clinical psychologist, also named Kelly, as you pointed out. And, uh, and, and sort of just kept uh, looking for bigger and bigger stages and, and bigger and bigger ways to be interesting. And uh, eventually uh, I started blogging in 2012 and uh, started writing letters to my kids. And one of those letters went really viral. And my daughter and I wound up on the Today Show in 2014. And uh, it was an incredible experience. And also sort of an awakening for me, like a midlife awakening where I go, okay, um, I've been saying I want to find a bigger and bigger stage, become more and more relevant and more and more interesting. Well, I've been on the Today Show now, and uh, it doesn't get much bigger than that. And um, and I think that's the sort of the moment in life where it's like this midlife moment where you can either have an awakening or you can have a crisis. And we create a crisis by sort of doubling down on the same things that got us where we are, right? More striving, better toys, more money, more achievement. And I was really aware I didn't want to create a crisis with that moment. And, uh, and so my wife and I just said, hey, what if we started to ask different questions and, uh, and started to accept that we're worthy exactly the way we are? What would we do? And the answer was, move back to Dixon, Illinois and raise our kids. So <laughs> that's where I'm coming in from today. That's really good because you, you, you avoided the whole uh, finding that you've got to the top of the ladder and found that it was against the wrong building scenario, mm. right? Right. Yeah, it's a great Thomas Merton quote. Um, we, we climb the ladder of success only to find at the top that it's, it's le leaning against the wrong wall. Exactly. And, um, and not to say that I didn't go through iterations of that through, you know, much of my early thirties and, and such, but I think that there was just this, there was this moment, which you sort of pointed out in leading in the introduction to the show, which is, wait, I've got what I thought was going to make me happy. I've got what I thought was going to satisfy me. Um, you know, I've sort of arrived at that place that was supposed to deliver on all of that and it's not doing it. And, um, and so at that point we, you know, so many of us have the instinct to start doubling down. Well, if, you know, if this amount of money, uh, didn't make me happy, maybe twice that amount, or if this wife didn't make me happy, maybe a different one would. And, uh, and so it was really, it's really a question of, are you going to slow down in that moment? And take responsibility for a, a truth, which is what, what's got you this far often can't take you the rest of the way. Um, you have mm -hmm. to start asking different questions, better questions, 
settling into and surrendering to, to different outcomes and different destinations. And so that's uh, that's a pause that we took in 2014 to sort of settle into that that process. And my wife started to practice a Benedine practice of consolations and desolations every day, just asking herself, like, what, where does my energy and my joy gather and, and where does it recede? And um, and I started to do the same thing, and it led to this really unexpected destination for us, which was to come back here to Dixon. That's really helpful to understand, and it and that it was something that both of you did together. Because in the mm-hmm. in the book, Elijah Campbell has this crisis, and you could call it a midlife crisis if you want to, but basically everything, every wall that he has put his uh, ladder up against is crumbling, and part of it is his marriage and and everything that he 's used to gain worth and value is coming undone and so i I have uh, you just mentioned a word that i 've been talking about for the last three days and i 'm going to bring it up again it 's outcome. Uh, let me take our first break though we 'll come back and talk more with Dr. Kelly Flanagan the unhiding of Elijah Campbell is our featured resource. It's a novel, but it's really different. And I'll tell you more about that and why I think every man listening and every woman who loves a man needs to hear what we're talking about today at the Radio Backyard Fence. Dr. Kelly Flanagan is at the Radio Backyard Fence, joining us from Dixon, Illinois. He is the author of The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell, as well as other books. But this is the novel that I wanted you to hear about. It's an award winner. Elijah is on the brink of losing everything he cares about, everything that gives him worth, what he's worked hard to curate and manage and control has gone out of control. And at this point, some people will medicate, some will uh, try to find something new to fill the void. Some will do the spiritual thing and will say, well, God has put this in my life in order for this to happen, and they'll figure it out. They'll try to figure that out and move all the pieces around because to them that makes sense. But for many men who get to this point, I think, Kelly, they, they can only look at the outcome. A man whose wife has left with the kids says, I need to get them back. I want them to return. Mm-hmm. I want to atone for my say, mistakes. I'm sorry. And the focus is on the outcome. I've got to get that. I've got to get them back in my life, which un- is understandable. I hope that happens. But it strikes me that at some point in Elijah's journey, he becomes less committed to the outcome and more committed to the journey or the process. And he goes from, you know, the changes trusting fully in himself and his ability to make things happen, control things, and more to surrender and becoming comfortable with the discomfort that he feels. Mm-hmm. So that's my mm-hmm. flyover of, you know, the second time through this. Am I getting close to what you're trying to do? I love the observation. You know, I think the the words process and outcome uh, map onto a sort of duality um, that we can see sort of throughout human functioning and human relationships. And, you know, um, another sort of dimension of that duality is fixing versus feeling. Right. And you see this come out in relationships a lot where, um, you have, uh, you have husbands, men who are sort of geared more towards that outcome, 
And so they say, well, oh, you got a problem. I'll fix it for you. And, uh, and, and say what, and their wife is going, no, no, I, I just want you to feel it with me. I don't need to, you to fix anything that sort of is invalidating. You're sort of acting like, I don't know how to fix it myself. I just want you to be in it with me. And, uh, and that's one of, if you sort of had to put a title at the top of those two columns of duality, it might be, um, doing versus being right. Um, yes. doing energy, which is all about fixing, accomplishing, getting somewhere, achieving something, and being energy, which is more about being present to experiencing curiosity, um, surrendering, and and I do think that sort of midlife moment for a lot of men is is asking them to start to value being as much as they value doing, uh, to to value uh, being present to as much as they value uh, sort of producing something and. And definitely that as we watch Elijah's trajectory within the book, we definitely see him starting to surrender to that. Um, he's not going to be able to fix this by doing more. He's going to have to be present to himself, his whole story, his whole past, all of his pain, and then ultimately to his people in order to get through this. Yeah, and that past is so important to deal, to deal with, but he, like many men, just want to move on. Just want to, why, mm -hmm. why are you digging that up? You're just stirring things up and right. it's not going to be, you know, how do you, how, how do you convince a man who believes that, that I, I don't, there's, not, there's nothing back there that's going to help me. I just need to move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I understand it. I've lived it, um, and and I understand the the thinking. the The first thing I would say is that we don't dig up the past. The past is constantly pushing its way into the present. Um, we are we don't have to go out of our way to sort of stir it up. And and then you get asked the question, well, "What do you mean? What do you mean by that? When when is the past pushing its way into the present?" And I'll say, you'll notice at any at some point today whether it's in a, sort of a situation at work or it's in a conversation with your wife or you know a dispute with your teenager you'll notice somewhere between your say your your stomach and your temples you're going to notice a tightening in your body and when you notice that tightening in your body what you're actually noticing is uh, a part of you coming to your own defense you're, you're literally you're noticing in that moment that a part of you is saying, I need to be protected and it's closing and tightening up and it's getting ready to fight. Well, what is it protecting? Um, and, and the reality is what it's protecting is, you know, I've experienced these things in my life that didn't feel good and I don't want to feel them again. I want, I want this situation to deliver something different for me, something more pleasurable, less painful. And so actually your past is actually pushing its way into the present and you're feeling it in your body. And so we can slow down and isolate around that moment and we'll discover that your whole story is present right there in that moment. Um, and you see this happen for Elijah again and again in the story, you know, like he, he, he tightens up as people are trying to help him and encourage him to explore his past. He tightens up over and over again and he starts to resist it. But if he can relax and surrender into that, he actually begins to learn from his past and dialogue with it and redeem it. But there has to be a catalyst for that to happen. You have to come to the, there has mm. to be a crisis or you have to come to the end of yourself or your ability right. to think, I can fix this. Uh, and that's what happens to him, right? Yeah, you know, I love that uh I won't get it exactly right, but to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, you know, um, we're all invited to a day at the ocean, um, but we sort of get stuck with and satisfied with mud plies in the slums, you know. And I think that's the reality: is that we sort of we get 
stuck and satisfied with this closed, tight, defensive, hidden sort of stance towards life uh, when what we're being called to is a more open-hearted, authentic, and vulnerable stance. And um, until something causes us to have to question the mud pies in the slums, we never even think about you know the day the day at the sea, and uh, and so this in this book, as you pointed out, sort of illustrates some of us require an awful lot of pain and suffering before we begin to question the, the mud pies and start to open up to a bigger, uh, more beautiful possibility for our lives. We had Dr. Crawford Luritz on with us yesterday, and he said something I wrote down on a note card, and he said it takes courage and confidence to be humble. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of men, one of my questions for you is, why is it so hard for men to, to seek counseling? It's, it, it's mm-hmm. a hu- humbling thing. It can be a humiliating thing to say, you know, I, have, I can't mm-hmm. fix it on my own. Um, but there is a certain sense of courage that you get over to, to come to that realization. And you, when you realize, no, this is strength in order to see the truth about me and what is going mm-hmm. on here in my relationships, I need help. Right. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I have a hard time, Chris, getting through a conversation without talking about the the three the three most important things that I can think of about being human. And here they are, real quickly. We come into the world with a true self. It's uh, it's created for us by God. It is, you know, beautifully and wonderfully made. It is made in the image of God, um, and and at some point, it is it is worthy of love and belonging. But at some point, we encounter a painful experience that makes us feel like we aren't worthy of love and belonging the way that we are. And so what we do, and this usually is happening by six, seven, eight years old, we unconsciously, um, we, we, what we say is like, well, if who I am isn't good enough to, to be loved the way it is, I better build a self that is uh, capable of getting loved um, and protecting me from any more of this pain of, of rejection. And so, and that that second self or false self or ego, we might call it, um, that part of us is the part of us that is that we're feeling come up in us when we tighten up. It's the part of us that protects us. And, and that part believes it is weak to not defend ourselves. That part of us believes it is weak to be authentic and to be vulnerable. Our ego only feels strength in defensiveness and aggressiveness um, and in hiddenness. And, uh, and so it requires an incredible amount of soulful uh, divine courage to say this persona, this facade, this version of me that I've created to keep myself safe, it's actually stronger to let that go than to hold on to it. Um, but in midlife, that's what that's the that's the question that many of us are facing. Will we release that persona and facade and settle into the self that was created for us? Scary, hard, but incredibly brave. Well, but it's freeing, you know, in the end, it, it brings freedom. It mm-hmm. brings, you know, you can finally, you don't have to put up the facade. And I, and as you were talking, I was just thinking about our kids and, and the next generation that's coming up and the curating of the image that is done online that you show, you know, mm-hmm. this is who I am. It has become uh, so difficult for them to get through this because they can they can manipulate this. They can show people an image that's not true, and it looks real. Well, absolutely. I think the um, you know there, ironically, in our analog generation, 
um, there was some awareness that the me that I'm now putting forth, like, you know, yesterday in fourth grade, when I went to school yesterday, I was fine wearing what I wanted to wear. And then somebody made fun of it. And I came home and I said, I got to have Nikes from now on. And I've got to sit at this table in the cafeteria and I've got to play basketball instead of doing that. You know, that, that persona we started to create, we were sort of aware that that's not really me. Right. But with digital media, um, we start to get a little confused about that. And we think, oh no, the version of me online is the real me. And it gets reinforced for being the, the real you. Um, and, uh, and so that, that sort of dividing line between the true me and this crafted me starts to get blurred and it's especially confusing. And I experience it myself. I mean, even as an adult now, you know, you start to get, uh, you start to get a little bit confused, like uh, where you find your identity. Is it in the the likes online or is it in the presence with your family? It's a, it's a confusing place to be. Or how your book is doing if you win an award. Uh, or because <laughs> oh, part of Elijah's thing. That would never thing, happen, Chris. <laughs> yeah, we've got to talk about it. Part of Elijah's thing is he's written a book, you know, and it's because, but there are, there are struggles that he has under the surface and I won't give too much away, but there are struggles that there are things that he is hiding Part of it is he's hiding it from himself as much as he is, you know, everybody else. He's he's pushed it away, and he gets into a place where it's almost. I would I would say he's in a depressive state. I don't know if you'd agree with me about that, mm-hmm. but I was reading a, a Parker Palmer this morning, and he said depression is a friend pressing you to ground on which it is safe to stand. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. can you think of depression as? a good thing in your life that's pointing out something that you cannot see that will help you stand rather than on shifting sand on solid mm. ground. And I never thought of it quite that way. Yeah, that's beautiful. He he writes so beautifully about depression um, and it was formative in, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, me starting to think entirely differently about depression as a psychologist, because we tend to get trained and think of depression as an extreme form of sadness. Um, But I actually began to treat depression not as an extreme form of sadness, but as the, the emotional exhaustion that comes from suppressing a lot of other emotions. So what you often discover is that somebody who's depressed that isn't necessarily sad. It's it's tired. It's the the, the the psychological energy that's gone into repressing all of the things that I'm angry about, or all of the things that I'm hurt about, or all of the things that I fear. And when you create space for some of those things from our past to push their way into the present, you actually discover that the, the depression lifts pretty, pretty quickly um, because it was the the energy being used to keep all of those things bottled up that is now freed up for other things. So I think I think you you put your finger right on it that depression sometimes is telling us you've got a lot of things here to feel that you're not letting yourself feel. Yes. And you couple that then with your faith and you mm-hmm. you get distance from God and he is silent and he won't fix your life. You know, like you the the, the paralytic could be let down and boom he's walking and you're still in this state. There's a character in the story, Father Lou, who says to Elijah, when you can't hear God anymore, it's not because God is gone. It's usually because God's waiting for you to have a different kind of conversation. And then he pauses and says, maybe a more honest conversation. Talk about that. Mm. 
Yeah, you know, I think of uh, my life as a therapist and um, and what it what it feels like to be sitting in a room with somebody who's who's trying to talk about one thing when you know the thing that they're really needing to talk about, right? The thing that would really start to free them. And it doesn't feel like the loving thing to sit there and collude with a conversation that isn't going to be helpful to them. And how much more so God, you know, do we're, we're trying to have all these various conversations with God, X, Y, and Z. And, and God's going, I know you really need to talk with me about A, B, and C though. So I'm just going to hang out and wait until you're ready to talk about that. And, uh, and so I think a lot of what we experience as silence from God is really God's patient waiting for us to have that different conversation. Yes. The patience of God. When you said the thing about tired, it was like I had written tired down as you were talking. And then you said tired. That's what people feel. Mm -hmm. And there's this spiritual tiredness too, after striving for so long to measure up and get God to like me by doing whatever it is mm -hmm. that I do to get him to like me, if you know, or not doing, you know, those other things. And then to realize, no, I'm accepted and I I, I am loved because of his goodness. Uh, let me, I'll call the timeout right there and open the phone lines, uh, especially guys. I'd love to hear how you're, you respond to this and whether you have found a place in your life where you had to seek somebody else to help you, whether it's a counselor or a pastor or just a good friend, and you let down and you let your seek, you unhid from somebody else. That ever happened to you? And what happened? 877 548 3675. Kelly Flanagan's with us. The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell's our featured resource today. Thanks for joining us for Chris Fabry Live. Would you do me a favor when you go to the website today? See, I said when, not if. When you go to the website, chrisfabrylive.org, click Wycliffe. We are headed toward the celebration of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Don't go too quickly to the resurrection. Remember the, 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 the Saturday. The story of Jesus is the greatest story ever told, but a lot of people have never heard it in their own heart language. Wycliffe Bible Translators USA is working hard to meet this need by translating the Bible for those who don't have it in their own language. And I think you'll be encouraged by the way that Wycliffe is working to bring the scriptures to people who don't have, can't hold it in their hands. Right now, click Wycliffe at chrisfabrylive.org. They're offering a free Easter devotional that will take you through, especially in these days leading up to our, uh, our celebration of what Jesus did for us. You can download that absolutely free. Just go to chrisfabrylive.org, chrisfabrylive.org, and click Wycliffe. Kelly Flanagan is with us today at the Radio Backyard Fence. I'm going to go to Tom in uh, Pennsylvania. Tom, tell me why you called today. Uh, the understatement way would be to say things are resonating with the, what you guys are saying. The, the actual thing is all kinds of bells and whistles are going off, um, and I, I need to read the book. So, um, But the first thing is, as a man, uh, and I, I think upbringing and culture, the thing between being and doing um, is really, it, it's been tough for me to learn how to do the being and the listening to myself and, and listening to the still small voice, 
you know, the Lord and burying it by doing. Uh, but for me, I've had, I've gotten to the point where, where the depressing the stuff that I, that I didn't want to deal with was so much that I, I couldn't function in the present and I had to get help. And, and, uh, that's just really struck me because there, there is a time to do, you know, because there are many commands, but be still and know that I'm God and, you know, love, love the Lord, your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's the doing can get me into works righteousness. And, and then that tension between the temple and the stomach is just, you know, going. And, and the other thing that hit, hit me while he was sharing about the stomach and the tension between the stomach and the, the temple is, a way I can tell when the past is pushing on the present is if I can just look at what I'm feeling in the present and look at the situation and say, the level of emotions that I'm feeling in the present is way too much for what's happening in the present. And then I, I, you know, I said, Holy Spirit, help me. There's, there's something I think in the past that you need to show me. So I, I, I just really thank you guys. This is, this is really an excellent uh, discussion. Kelly, what do you say to Tom? Well, Tom, thank you for your, your authenticity, uh, your awareness, uh, how articulately you just, you just translated what we were saying into your own story. I'm really touched by it. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad that the being versus doing, uh, piece of that is, is helpful and encouragement and challenging. Um, I, I actually was thinking of a really pivotal moment in my life, uh, where I shifted from doing into being, it was, it was in the end of 2007 into 08. I was actually depressed myself. Um, I had, you know, gotten my degrees, had the PhD. It was like, there's no more letters to put behind my name. I didn't know what I was going to do to run from it anymore, you know? And, um, and I, my new year's resolution going into 2008 was I'm not going to read any more books. I'm not gonna, uh, you know, do any more self-improvement. I'm not going to do any of that. I am going to practice um, through prayer and contemplation um, and presence. I'm going to practice simply being with myself and, and going on what, what I call the inward journey rather than the outward journey. The outward journey is oftentimes doing and the inward journey is learning how to be and be present to ourselves. And I was standing, um, I remember I got home from a workout. My wife said, uh, how did your, how'd your workout go? <laughs> and at that point I was like, I'd be riding the stationary bike and I wouldn't read any books or listen to any music or anything. I was just being present to myself and I'm standing in the kitchen and I said to her, well, I realized today that my whole life, if you, if you asked me what it would be like to stand in front of God, I would tell you that God would look at me and point a finger at me and say, Kelly, you know, I'm disappointed. You can do better. And, and I said to my wife, I don't think that's the voice of God. I think that's the voice of shame in me. I've never actually heard the voice of God. I got to start listening for the voice of God within me. And that became my spiritual discipline over the rest of that year and um, really became a life led up to a life changing moment for me. So I, I resonate Tom with that, that tension of like, <laughs> it's hard to stop doing with doing energy, right? You're like, okay, what are the three things I've got to do to stop doing? Actually, that's just more doing energy. Uh, <laughs> being is the cessation of doing it's the absence of doing it's, 
it's engaging in practices that that encourage us to be present and to go on an inward journey rather than an outward journey but it really is tricky because that doing energy wants to find all sorts of creative ways to take control again and um and i love what you said there's a time and a place to do but our wisest doing always comes from first being and being present to and so um i just want to give you a ton of encouragement um, an affirmation on this journey towards a, a greater capacity for being. Thank you for sharing your story. Same here, Tom. And and as you were uh, talking about your life, uh, the the scripture that I thought about was at the baptism of Jesus and the voice that said, "This is my beloved Son, uh, and in Him I, I take delight. In Him I'm well pleased. In Him I'm well pleased." And that was before. Now you could say, you know, he'd lived a sinless life up to that point. Uh, so he had he had done that, but that was before any of the miracles, any of you know. It's and God said, mm-hmm. "This is my beloved Son." And I realize that Jesus is God too. At the same time, you know, and so we can't we can't separate that. But if I am in Christ, and and God said that about Jesus, then instead of pointing the finger or shaking, he said, "Most of the time that I think about it, Kelly, I think of derision. It's like, oh." You again, <laughs> you know, asking me again for this same thing. Why, why are you, you know, uh, palm against the forehead type of thing? And I felt the same thing. It says, no, no, God, God doesn't love me because I've accomplished something or I did a really mm-hmm. good interview or asked an insightful question or I, you know, whatever. As a parent, I made, uh, I, I did something well that affirmed my child. He loves me because he loves me. He's commended his love to me. He, I'm beloved to him. He takes delight in me, period. Doesn't mean I'm perfect, you know, in this life and I have a ways to go. But if I live from that, then everything in my life looks different than if I see his frown, right? Oh, man. I, I, it was a number of years ago now, maybe three or four years ago. I was a Sunday morning, had a chance to speak at a, really large church. And I had that sort of voice of shame chirping up going, what are you doing? Talking to the size of a crowd on a Sunday morning, you know? And, um, and I, I started to do all my doing things like trying to talk myself out of that feeling. And instead it was like, okay, you know, breath, prayer, be, and, and the, the, the experience that I had in the prayer, was actually that very image, right. Of Jesus being baptized in the river Jordan and coming up and the dove descending. And, and that's exactly what struck me, Chris, was this blessing came before all of his doing, before the entire, it was at the beginning of the ministry. He wasn't being rewarded for a job well done. He was being identified um, as the son of Christ and and everything he would do from there flowed from that identity rather than the other way around. And, and I just remembered like a sort of like peace, like a dove descending upon me in that moment going, Yes. There's nothing at stake here today. You are who you are who you are, and now you get to go do from that. And the greatest gift that you can give to your wife and your kids and those around you and to us today as you're talking to us is just you. It's being who you mm-hmm. are rather than the imitation of you that you'd like to curate and show us what you ate for <laughs> dinner last night to make us think better. You know, um it, it is it, but but at the same time, and uh, I need to take a break. Uh, the, the Unhiding of Elijah Campbell is written by Kelly Flanagan. It's a novel. I want to find out from you, 
the difference between writing fiction and nonfiction, but there's something that happens to Elijah when he sees something, a family member is, is doing something, and he sees it, and this is the catalyst that takes him down a well. I want you to talk about that. We may take some of your calls as well. If you go to the website, chrisfabrylive.org, you'll see Kelly's book, The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. Just go to chrisfabrylive.org. Thanks for your support at the Back Fence, and uh, thanks for my Back Fence partners, a growing number of you who give a gift each month and receive the Back Fence post, a video that I send every Thursday. As well, if you're a Back Fence partner, you receive, you can receive our monthly gift if you respond to it this month of March 1st today. It's Larry Shackley, my pal Larry. I worked with Larry uh, decades ago. We were in offices next to each other, and I just love his heart, and I love his love for hymns, and he's composed this CD, Hymns in the Stillness, solo piano, near the cross, tell me the story of Jesus, trusting Jesus, draw me near, more, uh, 12 of them. If you give a gift of any size, we'll send this to you, or become a Back Fence partner with us. You can find out how at chrisfabrylive.org, chrisfabrylive.org. Uh, Indebted to Kelly Flanagan for helping us think a little deeper here today about life and about the past and the struggles. Craig is calling from Florida. Craig, go right ahead. Hey, how y'all doing? I really appreciate this topic. I have not uh, heard of the uh, brother before or the book, but I was just driving back. I'm I'm turning 75 uh, on the 5th, and, and he had mentioned something about how when he was six or seven, when you're six or seven, all of a sudden you get a wake-up call that maybe you're not the perfect, acceptable person that you thought you were. It might be something simple like, uh, you know, somebody at school says something to you and makes you realize that in their eyes, at least, you're not as good as they are. And the next day you're telling your dad and mom you need Nikes. And I was thinking, boy, here I am, 75, and it seems to me like life has been a series of uh, wake-up calls. You know, I, I I grew up young like that in a poor family and uh, with a lot of competition and had some things as the middle middle child of six and and uh, a lot of struggles because of our economic situation. And so always have to figure out, well, how do I get to this next step? I just found out I'm not as good as I thought I was yesterday. What do I do about tomorrow? And it took me through a lot of things. I found music and uh, became uh, a you know, professional musician and ended up in the 60s going through that route and the struggles with drugs and all that, ended up going to prison. And that's where I met Christ on April 28, 1974, in a prison chapel. And so two two years after that, I got out, and my life began to change. I saw that the, the Lord would lead me from step to step and led me to some people that helped me uh, really find out what it meant to be a Christian. I always thought Christianity was about dying. Well, that's what kicked in after you die. You know, uh, I'm saved now, so I'll go to heaven. I didn't realize it was about living until I... 1976 when I got out and started walking out. So it's been a lot of things since then. I've been in the mission field for the last 45 years, and I'm turning 75. I've got my wife and I 45, 44 years. We have 10 grandchildren, and the youngest is 12. All the others are in college and stuff. But uh, just the comments, I've never, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of psychologists and done a lot of counseling, mostly working with the poor, 
either here or in Asia or in Russia or in Ecuador and places like that or Mexico where we've worked and uh, just uh, realizing that boy that is such a such a insight that was that that uh, you might be on a you might be on an escalator of these wake up calls that shift you in a new direction and somehow getting to the point where you can manage that and say okay I cannot accept what others decide my life is about. I've got to find a way to, to do that myself. And that's hard. And, you know, some people, maybe they grew up without uh, the, the struggles of uh, the kind of things I went through in my life. And I don't say I had a bad life. I, I always felt good about life. I, I, I believed I was a Christian because we had a coffee table Bible on the, a big Bible on the coffee table. I always looked at those pictures and I concluded somewhere in my teenage years, well, if there is a God, this must be what he liked. This Jesus is just fantastic. So it wasn't a struggle for me when I really realized that there's more to it than just that and the personal relationships. I just Craig, I, let me jump in here. Let me let me jump in here because you, you said something that I can't get past, and that is that I thought Christianity was about it was after you die, that that's when it <laughs> when it kicked in, mm-hmm. but it's about living. And I think that really coincides, Kelly, with your story. It feels like death to let go of your secrets and to do the unhiding, but really it's about life that you're, that Elijah is going toward, right? Mm, yeah. So, and I, I'm indebted to, uh, <clears throat> to, to the caller as well for that, that story. Cause I, I think everyone listening does need to hear that, you know, those moments where our sense of worth is called into question, they're not just back when we're six or seven, you know, it's a, it's a series of them throughout our lives. And I just sort of take those moments these days as an opportunity to, to get still again and be and listen for the voice of grace and um, inside of us and, and, uh, and be reminded of who we are. Uh, But yeah, I, I really think, I mean, the way that I have, um, the, what my faith has developed into more than anything, and I, I sort of get emotional when I say this, is that, um, and, and you, you said it uh, earlier too, don't skip over Saturday uh, when we get to, on our way to Easter. Um, don't skip over Friday. Don't skip over Thursday. Thursday was a hard day for yes. Jesus. My goodness. Um, you know, and that really what what Jesus, the, the way of Jesus is he's showing us how to enter into the pattern of death and resurrection. Um, and that pattern will happen to us in a grand way when it comes to our life and, and our afterlife. But on a day-to-day basis, we're still being called into that pattern of death and resurrection. And that's certainly something I wanted to explore with Elijah's story. What does it look like to be faithful to that calling of death and resurrection in our own lives, death of our protections, death of our hiding, um, and resurrection into authenticity and vulnerability and real connection. So um, that's that really speaks to me, Chris. It does to me too, Craig. Thank you. Um, and the the whole idea of, I mean, l- let's just be honest about Elijah's situation. He's got divorce papers, you know, and he has to, and, mm-hmm. and he wants to, he wants to hang on. He wants to hold on to his wife. Mm-hmm. He wants to hold on to his daughter and, and he realizes that he can't. And so he goes on this journey that as he looks at his past, and I love this, it's almost Proust-like, you know, when 
of you you taste the soup and all these things come back even wintergreen gum you know <laughs> you use wintergreen gum there are spots in his hometown where these thing these memories flood back to him one of them being this uh, image in his teenage years when a, a girlfriend dumps him and he, he wants to talk to somebody badly and then he sees this, you know, thing that he shouldn't have seen that he keeps a secret for the rest of his life. There are people who are walking around with those kinds of secrets. What do you say to them? Mm. You know, I wanted to, with Elijah, I wanted to... Uh, illustrate for all of us in a compelling way um, how many secrets we end up carrying around in just an ordinary life. Uh, you know, Elijah's story isn't extraordinary. Um, that was part of the challenge of writing it was to write an ordinary story in a way that was really compelling. Um, and his big secret, he carries around a, little, a lot of little secrets too, as you, as you find out as you go. But you know, his big secret is unfortunately more ordinary than, than we'd like to even admit. And, and so one of the things that I've heard from readers uh, who have read this story is um, the, the grace that comes from the experience of reading Elijah's story and going, oh, like we're all carrying around secrets. And I don't need to be ashamed that I've carried around secrets and because the irony is that shame is what causes us to hide in the first place. Really, shame is the instinct to, to hide something about ourselves. And so the idea that we do not need to be ashamed of our secrets and we can begin to, to share them and show them is, uh, I hope, a powerful takeaway for readers of the book. Yeah. It is, and it's been a really good hour, and I apologize to those who are on the line who weren't able to get through. Uh, one question is, I know someone who's disconnected with themselves. How would they get reconciled with themselves in order to have relationship with others? And I th I'm not going to have you answer that, but I think even in the way that the f question is phrased, you've gotten it. You have to be, mm. there has to be something that goes on in here in order for there to be wholeness out there. And uh, that I don't think anybody can do that for somebody else, though in the novel, and I love that you've done this fictionally, in the novel there are people who keep trying and keep knocking. Uh, one of his counsel his counselor actually fires him. <laughs> if his counselor says, don't come back to me, because you're not, I'll leave it there. Uh, Kelly, thanks a lot for being with us today. Keep doing what you're doing, okay? Chris, this is a blessing. Thank you. The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell is a novel. It's an award winner. I mentioned a little earlier, and it's something that I say, it's a great story that pulls you in and doesn't let you go until you see yourself. And this book is like looking in a mirror. It really is in a lot of ways. And I think for men, it's going to do that kind of thing, that inner work. Knock on the back door of your heart in some way. Hope it does. Hope this conversation has done the same thing. And come on back tomorrow. My pal Miriam Neff is going to be with us on Chris Fabry Live, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.